Lord Jesus, you did come to us um, so unexpectedly, so amazingly. Such a perfect plan for our redemption to pay for our sins. Forgive us, Lord, as we, what we're celebrating here, Lord. You know, we, we get all wrapped up in giving presents and uh, just all the busyness and the commerciality of Christmas and of this season. Help us to remember, Lord, that you coming here to this earth to squeeze yourself down into human form to show us how to live and how to love and how to dive to ourselves for each other. Help us to remember that's it, Lord. Draw us closer to you this season, Lord. Draw our attention here this morning. We need your help doing that, Lord. For it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found great favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. One of the traditions we have in my house each Christmas is lighting the Advent wreath. We light one candle each of the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and then we light the fifth candle on Christmas Eve. It's just one of the ways we prepare for the coming of Christ. Another tradition we have is that after lighting the Advent wreath, we get to open one gift. This gift is from my sister Michelle. I wonder what it could be. So it's a little initial A for Alyssa. And then there's a card that has my name with its meaning on it. You know, it's pretty cool that I opened this gift when we just heard about the angel telling Mary what to name Jesus. You know, some think that there's just something important about a name, something special, even something defining. Let's see what my name says about me. Alyssa means truth or oath of God. That's pretty cool. And here's the description. You have a gregarious personality and a quick-thinking, creative, and versatile nature. You desire change and enjoy opportunities that allow you to be creative and act independently. Well, I'm not sure about all of that, but I do know that I am defined by much more than my name. You see, I am Alyssa, child of the one true king. The rest is just details. I'm going to read you the story of Jason. He received a gift that came to define him, even if sometimes he doubts the truth that it holds. Jason and the gift that defines. When I think about the best gifts I receive, my new life in Christ is at the top of the list. I even say that my identity in Christ is what defines me, but sometimes I get discouraged. I see the Lord is changing me. I'm not who I was, but I'm not who I want to be yet either, and I can get discouraged. But I've got a theory about how all this works. I wonder if it's kind of like this. Early on in our marriage, my wife wanted to have children, and I didn't want to. I was scared to death of it. I was so scared because I couldn't imagine myself as a father. 
I just couldn't see it. And then the day came when our twin boys were born. I remember holding them and walking up and down the hallway in the hospital. Over and over, I was saying to myself, I'm a father. I'm a father. In that moment, I became a father, and I knew I'd have all the grace I would need. I became something I didn't think I could be. During that time, there were other things that converged to help me feel more like I was a man. We got our first mortgage. I also got my first grill. I cook raw meat on that sucker. Sometimes I don't even cook it all the way before I eat it. I got my first shop vac, so I didn't have to borrow my dad's anymore. Yep, an eight-gallon Black & Decker shop vac, my own shop vac. Well, my wife uses it mostly, but I still can call it mine. <laughs> I had all these things that made me feel like more of a man. They bolstered my identity and my confidence. I began to walk with swagger that having your own shop vac could, affords you. I had more confidence because I saw myself differently. I understood myself differently, and therefore I became something different, something new. Maybe you see where I'm going here. You see, I'm really good at identifying with certain scriptures at the expense of others. I do pretty well with the difficult scriptures that tell me I'm a sinner saved by grace. Those are the verses that God used to reveal my sin, my need for Christ, my need to be saved. But now that Jesus has saved me, too often I stay camped out on those verses in shame and guilt. But Jesus moves on, and he's got new things to say about me. Things that are sometimes even more difficult to take in than those first scriptures. Things like this, that because of Christ, I am chosen and holy and dearly loved. Not that I'm going to be holy, but that right now, somehow, because of Christ, I am holy. And sometimes I don't believe it. I look in the mirror and I don't see someone who is holy and dearly loved by God. But it's right there. It's right there in God's word. And if I reckon with those scriptures that called out my need for salvation, I have to reckon with these other scriptures too. I wonder if a part of it becoming new begins with believing and trusting what the Lord has to say about me. For anyone that has a hard time imagining that, they're new. This song is for you. Uh, when the angels announced Jesus' birth, they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to all men on whom his favor rests. Well, I'm a sports fan, and for every sport, practice leading up to games is often about the basics, and no matter what level. I'm, I don't know if Reggie's here, but I don't even know what the basics of cricket are, but I know basketball. <laughs> the basics of basketball are boxing out and playing really good on-ball defense and listening so you can play help defense and shooting well. And no matter what level of basketball you play, practice involves some reinstruction of those things. Now, when you get to like the professional level, of course, the offensive and the defensive schemes are much more complicated, and you have to work on those schemes, and you, you have to work on game planning for the team that's coming up, because sometimes the scheme changes from uh, game to game, and sometimes there are new offensive structures, new offensive plays that have to be practiced, but at every practice, there's work on boxing out so that you can rebound and playing really good on-ball defense and shooting the ball well because at the end of the game, the team with the most points always invariably wins. And so you have to keep the other team from scoring, and you have to score. That's why Tiger Woods, at the top of his golf game, when he was dominating the game of golf, maybe 
the way nobody has ever dominated an individual sport, Tiger Woods had a swing coach because it's about the basics. Often when we get together here on Sunday mornings at Gateway, we're really rehearsing and remembering and saying, oh yeah, to the basics. This morning is one of those days. You know, sometimes we get a little more complicated and sometimes we learn new things from God and sometimes uh, there's, there's new ways of uh, arranging our connection to Him or we learn new aspects of our connection to Him. But often, when we get together or even when we're with Him alone, what we're really doing is rehearsing and remembering and saying, oh yeah, to the basics. We may have a new way of looking at it. It's a, we turn the diamond differently and we look at it, a, a new facet of it in a new way, but it's really about looking at the diamond again. And we're going to do that today. We're going to look at one of the most basic aspects of what it means to have a connection to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we're going to look at it and unpack a little bit about how, how we nurture that, how we keep that going, how we stoke that. Let's pray together. Father, we welcome you. We know you're here. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way among us this morning and within us. Stir and speak. Lord, if you would, remind us. And I pray that we would feel at the deepest part of our chests an oh yeah, a reaffirmation of what you've done in us and what you're doing, what the process of trying to connect to you is, that we would see ourselves, Lord, today as new. And Father, I pray, I mean, it's a miracle because I'm asking for a miracle. This is one of those things we don't get unless you give it to us. But I pray that we would see ourselves in your light as you see us, as we really are, that we wouldn't be defined by fashion or how much money we make or our age or our, our look or our job or our family, that we would be defined by what you say we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, dictionary.com defines generosity as, I like this, Readiness or liberality in giving. And the second definition is freedom from meanness or smallness of mind and character. This Advent season, we're celebrating here the generosity of God by looking at the sometimes surprising nature of God's gifts to us. So two weeks ago, we looked at a freaky, amazing, awesome story, uh, just an encounter with Jesus when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, for those of you who even struggle, I know there are some, for those of you who struggle with even believing that that kind of thing could happen, suspend that for just a second and look at another almost as amazing feature of this story, and that's two surprising facets to this. Number one, John makes it clear, and this account comes from John, John makes it clear that Jesus let this happen. It's entirely possible that Jesus could have gone and healed Lazarus, but he didn't. And John tells us, John was Jesus' best friend, John tells us that Jesus did that intentionally. 
And the second shocking, surprising, blow-my-mind facet to this is that John and Jesus connected that, connected Jesus intentionally letting Lazarus die. He connected that to his love for Lazarus and for Lazarus' family and for his disciples. What Jesus ended up giving them through Lazarus' death was a full-on view of God's greatness and power, and that's the most wonderful gift he could give. Sometimes we said God allows difficult things in our lives because he loves us. I need to say that again. Sometimes God allows difficult things in our lives because he loves us, because he's using those difficulties to show us more about himself and, frankly, more about ourselves. We pulled out a quote from it really hit me in the chest from Rick Warren. Rick Warren is the pastor of one of the largest churches in America, and he's a best-selling author. A few years ago, his son committed suicide. So we know that Rick isn't just offering light spiritual platitudes when he said this, I don't have to know why everything happens, because God is good. He loves me, and life on earth is not the whole story. Last week, we talked about how God's gift or gifts to us are demanding. Again, we're talking about the sometimes surprising nature of God's gifts to us. We looked at the story of Zacchaeus, and we noted that Zacchaeus was a very wealthy guy, probably one of the wealthiest guys in the whole area, in the region. And through an encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus' life was completely reordered. We noted This is what God, hold on, this is what we said, God demands that our life be reordered. He demands that our lives be rearranged and changed by an encounter with him. No one, we said, no one who encounters God leaves that encounter unchanged. God's gift to us requires of us that we reorder our lives. It happens naturally and inevitably when he gives us himself. Well, today we want to talk about sort of the last feature of the surprising nature of God's gift to us. And today we're going to call that surprising nature defining. Today we're going to look at how God's gift to us defines us. And we're going to go to an unusual place. We're going to look in the book of Acts. There's a story in the book of Acts. I imagine if you've been around church at all, you've heard of the Apostle Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and he really started the Christian movement in Europe, which that movement became the forebear, the ancestors for many of us. So we're going to look at how Paul first got connected to God, and that story is found for us in Acts chapter 9. Now stay seated for a minute. Often when we're reading God's Word, we go old school, and we stand out of reverence for God's Word, but this is a long section, so I'm going to read part of it, and then I'm going to have you stand. So this is in Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me. It'll be on the screen, but I'd love for you to see this, and you can also look at it on your Bible app, those of you who have the Bible on your phone. Acts chapter 9, listen to this story of the Apostle Paul. Meanwhile, Saul, remember that? Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul would later change his name to Paul. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
Saul was evidently a pretty high-placed Pharisee. And the Pharisees, more than anyone else, were worried about this new Jesus movement. At this point, some suspected that this was kind of a weird, aberrant sect of Judaism, and they didn't know exactly what to do with it. For many, there was this kind of wait-and-see policy. For some, they had already identified this as a very dangerous movement. We need to stamp it out. Paul was among that crowd, and so he wanted to go try to identify Christians and have them killed. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And at this point still, the movement was primarily within Jewish circles, so Christians would go to Jewish synagogues and begin to explain to them, look, this guy was the Messiah. That w- he was the one that we were waiting for. I mean, we thought he was going to come and overthrow Rome, but what he really did was did something much more important. He came to overthrow sin in each of us. And we just didn't recognize him. The signs were there. He's going to come again at some point. He's promised us that, and he's going to make everything right. I mean, he's going to overthrow all power and authority. But for now, we just need to worship him and tell everybody about him. And, of course, they were ca- causing a stir in synagogues throughout the ancient Near East at this point. So Saul is going to go to Damascus, find these folks, and bring them back as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I wasn't going to do this, but just give me one minute. I want to tell a little story from my own life because I've read this and I've often thought, isn't that interesting that he says, who are you, Lord? I can remember, I don't know if any of you have had an experience anything like this before, but early in my marriage with Diane, Diane and I had just recently gotten married and we were living in Massachusetts at the seminary that I was going to because I was trying to prepare to do what I was going to do for the rest of my life and learn how to be a pastor. So I had gone to a seminary just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and been there for two years. And then the summer in between my second and third year, Diane and I got married. She moved up with me, and we moved into married student housing, which is this pretty nice apartment on campus at the seminary I went to, which is called Gordon-Conwell. And we were asleep one night. It was very early in the morning. You know, I felt a little guilty during this period of our marriage because Diane's dad had gotten Diane a job at an IBM office in the Boston area, but she had this horrible commute on Boston's version of 495. (laughs) We, We lived on one corner of Boston, and she had to drive halfway around the city to the other side, wake up at the crack of dawn, drive a Volkswagen Rabbit, which, you know, stick on the floor, and I had to teach her how to drive a stick, and first time she drives it, she takes the exit. She doesn't know how to go in first gear, and she's on a hill. So, yes. So, you should put on the emergency brake, get out, and tell the people behind her to move. (laughs) So, Diane's waking up at the crack of dawn to go to this office in Waltham, and of course, I really felt guilty about this, because I'm basically studying all day, but I don't feel so guilty that I actually get up with her. I sleep in almost every day. And one morning, we're in bed, sun isn't up yet, (laughs) 
And somebody, I couldn't tell if they actually came into our apartment. I didn't know how because we lock our door. But somebody said, get up, I want to spend time with you. And Diane didn't wake up. I woke up and I thought, what in the world? And I got up and I went out into the den. I turned the light on and there's nobody in there. Who in the world? I opened the door to the hallway and it was really neon lights and brightly lit. It was awful. And I look and there's nobody there. That is very weird. And I go back and I go to bed and I'm in that state where you're, I don't know, I don't know if I was asleep or awake, you know, you're sort of kind of halfway, get up, I want to spend time with you, what, I get out of bed real quick, I run, no they're not in the apartment now, and open the hallway door and there's nobody in the hall, and I close the door, and I thought, oh my gosh, did God just speak to me, did I just hear God's voice, what? And then, being who I am, I instantly thought, I must be extraordinarily cool and very spiritual. (laughs) So I went back to bed, and I started thinking about it. Because I'm naturally prone toward doubt, I thought, no. I mean, that can be God. What? And then the other side of my brain, I thought, no, wait, it has to be. Like, if that was a voice in my own head, I wouldn't say, get up, I want to spend time with you. I would say to myself, Get up, you should spend time with God. Well, I I ended up getting up and having a remarkable quiet time with God. A time when he showed me some things about my life. Here's what's interesting about it. I looked in the hallway. I didn't see anyone. I went back to bed the second time. And I didn't think, that must have been Fred. Somehow, in my spirit, somehow I knew I think Paul knew. I don't think he even needed to hear from Jesus anymore. I think he knew. I think he knew whose voice this was. Some of you have had the experience of knowing. A time when you were in high school, or sometime in your 20s, or maybe it was in your early 40s, or maybe it was all. You heard and you knew. Now this morning, let's remember that. Okay, we're going to start with the back half of verse 5, and stand with me if you would out of reverence for God's word. So here's what the voice says. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. What? (laughs) Wow. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. He's blind. For three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple, so a Christ follower, named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Is this this not remarkable? At the same time that this is going on with Saul, God is also speaking to Ananias. Called him in a vision, said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, so far so good, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Wait a minute. Wait, we've heard about this guy. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Are you quite sure? And he's come here with authority from chief priests to arrests to call on your name. And that's going to be me. And I'm walking right up to him. In fact, introducing myself. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the peoples of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You can be seated. Let's add a couple of things to this that are just worthy of note. I'm going to skip down to verse 26 in Acts chapter 9. In verse 26 it says this, When he came to Jerusalem, now we're talking about Saul, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, <laughs> not believing that he really was a disciple. And then over in Acts 13, Saul is now, he's actually out spreading the story about Jesus and what's happened to him. And he gets confronted by this weird sorcerer and he has this strange encounter. But we read this in verse 9 of chapter 13. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at this guy and said something. This is the first time he's referred to as Paul. And he is, for the rest of Luke's recounting, for the rest of the book of Acts, he's called Paul. And in all of his letters, he calls himself Paul. So last week, we said that an encounter with God changes who we are. That's certainly the case with Paul. Now, we might be tempted to think that this is the result of how dramatic the encounter with God was, because, of course, if something like that happened, you would be changed. But remember, last week we said that this business of encountering God and being changed is inevitable. It's the case for all of us, so let's put more substance onto that. We're going to say that God's gift to us changes us by defining us, or we should say redefining us. So the change is so epic, the change is fundamental. The change that happens to us spiritually is fundamental. It changes who we are. Here's what changed about Paul. Let's just survey this real quickly. First of all, what changed about Paul was his entire belief system. Paul was the guy, remember, who thought that he was fearing God and he was going to go kill Christians. Arrest them, bring them back, have them tried and killed. Because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And he ends up being the guy who in verse 19 of chapter 9 it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul's entire belief system changed. Some of you know what that's like. It happened to you as well. Paul's worldview changed. His complete worldview changed. Listen to this. And he would later write a group of his friends in the city of Corinth, a letter we refer to as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, say this. From now on, he's in the middle of this argument about how we're supposed we tell other people this stuff that's happened to us. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, we don't see people the way we used to see them. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, look, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. They've been made something new. The old is gone. The new is here. 
Some of you have heard me say many times before, several years ago I heard somebody give one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard, and I've heard many of you give incredible stories and incredible testimony to what God has done in your life. This young man stood up in our church in Massachusetts. He, he and I had worked on his story. I was afraid he would talk too long. So we had worked on his story. We had it all written up. A great story of just how God had worked in his life. He was going to come up on the stage and, and read it. He comes up on the stage. He brings his paper. He puts it up on the... We had a little podium up on our stage. He pauses for about 10 seconds, during which time I thought, oh no. And then he looks at us and he says, I'm not going to read this. I thought, double, oh no. And he ended up giving like a 40-second testimony. He said, I have to tell you, everything I thought about myself, wrong. Everything I thought about women, wrong. Everything I thought about work, wrong. Everything I thought about money, wrong. Everything I thought about life, wrong. God has changed everything. And he sat down. If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Thirdly, Paul's relational network changes. This begins immediately. I mean, he's brought some people with him who were riding into Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back prisoner to Jerusalem. And he ends up (laughs) hanging out with the people that he goes there to arrest. In fact, in very short order, the Apostle Paul ends up going and meeting and hanging out with the guys who are leading this whole movement. This matures into a new network for him and a a new richness in his relationships. Listen to what he would say to a group of Christians that he would be responsible for starting a church in the city of Philippi. He would later write those folks a letter. It's hard for me to imagine Pharisee Paul saying this, but he says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray for joy. He's writing to his Christian brothers and sisters. And it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Paul's relational network changes. A fourth thing, Paul's place in society changes. Paul goes to Damascus as an official of the court. He would tell us later in one of his own recounting of his own story and his own connection to God, he would tell us, look, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the man. I was on my way to the top. I was assistant to the vice president. I was at least going to be vice president of sales, it's entirely possible that I was going to be the CEO of Phariseeism in Judea. And yet, he says to these same Philippians in chapter 3, but whatever was gained to me, all the pluses on my resume, I now consider all of that loss for the sake of Christ. It's like completely reversed. All of the stuff that I saw as assets, I now see as liability. Those were the things that were keeping me back from making a real connection with God and getting it. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. But I consider them garbage if I can gain Christ. Paul, because he has met Jesus, becomes a new man. He is literally redefined. And as we've noted, this isn't just the case for Paul. This is throughout the New Testament as people encounter Jesus. And the changes we see aren't just incidental. These are identity changes. They're relational network changes. Their beliefs that their worldview, their place in society changes. This is probably 
uh, the explanation behind the name change from Saul to Paul. So, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, the Jewish tradition involved, you know, they came up with their names much the same way that we do today, that they were often named after a parent, or they would be named after a significant relative, or at times they were named after a significant event that happened in their family or a place. But at the time of the writing of the New Testament tradition, Jews would link your first name, the, the given name of a person, to the name of their father. So, for example, if someone were named Simon, they would be known, and their father was Jonah, let's say, they would be known as Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah. That's why we get so many names today like Johnson and Simonson. Paul would have almost certainly been called that by his Jewish friends and family and would have, during his pharisaical training, he would have thought of himself as Saul, son of whatever his father's name is. We don't know Saul's father's name because he quickly leaves that. He's no longer called that. Now, the the Greek and uh, Roman tradition was somewhat different. Even in this time, they would have gotten their first name from much the same kind of place. But for them, the last name was typically the place of your birth. So after Saul's conversion, he routinely becomes known as Paul of Tarsus. So why the name change? Well, we can speculate that this Romanization or this Greekization of his name is an embracing of his mission. Because God has told him that he's going to be the spokesperson to the Greco-Roman world. We don't know exactly when the name changed. We don't even know whether Paul sensed the need to make this change because God told him to do so, or whether just in his own thinking he felt like he needed to make this change. But we know this for sure. We know that Paul changed his name. He changed his name. We know that this represents a radical break and a change in identity for Paul. In other words, the change in Paul's own thinking about himself was so dramatic that he started referring to himself by a different name. All right, this is interesting info, but what does it have to do with us? Well, this business of God's gift to us leading to a redefinition of who we are, as I said, is still true today. We are radically changed at the level of our identity. Who we are is now defined by our connection to God in Christ. Who we are is defined by our connection to God in Christ. A number of years ago, I want to tell you this story for a couple of reasons. A number of years ago, we had a woman that was involved in our church in Boston. Diane and I lived in Boston for a few years, and I pastored a church there. And there was a woman who was involved in our church who was from a pretty unreligious background, and she had a drug problem, and she came to our church because this is a weird, bizarre story. For years, I thought somebody should make a lifetime TV movie out of it, but she got involved in our church because she actually broke into a home in East Boston and stole a bunch of stuff that she wanted to sell and use to support her drug habit. There were two or three other people with her. Unfortunately, the home, you know, this would happen so often in East Boston, the police would never do anything about a break-in like this. Even if it was a nice home, this was a pretty nice home. Unfortunately for 
we'll call her Sally. Unfortunately for Sally, the home that she broke into, she didn't know this, was the home of a Boston cop. So uh, they come in, they fingerprint the place, and they, and they end up finding Sally. So they find Sally, and this cop is ticked off, and they basically say, we'll cut a deal with you. If you turn on your compatriots and bring all the stuff back, you know, we'll lessen the charges, and you won't have to go to court. And she brings all the stuff back and turns on her compatriots, and then they take her to court anyway. And they're going to throw the book at her. So in the process of that happening, she gets involved with a drug counselor in the area who knew the, uh, the woman who was the youth pastor in our church, and Sally gets referred to us. So she comes to uh, meet me one day, and the youth pastor's with me, and she starts to tell us this story, and I don't have any idea what to do or how to help her. Seriously, I call my friend Rob Showers in northern Virginia, who lived in Alexandria at the time, and what in the world do I... I haven't told you all of it. She was involved with the FBI somehow. So I'm trying to help Sally unravel this story somewhat. In the process, we began to tell her about a connection with God and what this could do in your life. And I know when we're talking to Sally that God is moving in her heart. I can tell. You know, there are a handful of you here at Gateway. I can look at a few of you. There are a handful of you here at Gateway who the first time I met you, I knew, and some of you, I said, I really believe God is working in your life right now. I said to Sally the same thing that I have said to three or four of you. Again, I'm looking at some of you. I said, you know what? If you will give your life completely over to God, you won't recognize yourself in five years because God completely redefines who we are. I didn't say that part, but I knew that. If you'll give your life to God, He will change. You won't recognize yourself. You won't know your own story. And she does. She gives her heart, she gives her life to Jesus, and it is the real deal. I mean, this woman begins to change almost instantly. It's awesome. I have to tell you, this is just an aside, but uh, you know, I want to round out the story because it goes with what we said a couple of weeks ago. She gives her life to Jesus. She starts meeting with our youth pastor and regularly and doing Bible study with her. And this woman starts growing. And almost every time I see her, the look on her face is like, I, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm just learning so much about myself and about God. This is awesome. And I have this peace and I have this joy. God is going to take care of all of my problems. So she goes to court and she just knows that God is going to take care of her and it's all going to be good. And they find her guilty and she goes to prison for a year. She has not even told her 12-year-old daughter that she's in trouble with the law. Her daughter doesn't know she has a drug problem. She gets convicted, goes to prison, and her daughter doesn't even know she's going to court. Her daughter's in school. We have to go get her daughter out of school and say, by the way, your mom's going to prison for a year. We had to find somewhere for the daughter to live for a year. The daughter went to live with this wonderful young Christian couple who for the first time showed her what a stable life and family and marriage looked like. Sally goes to prison, is angry at God, doesn't want to see any of us. Our youth pastor goes to see her regularly. She wants nothing to do with God. Little by little, her heart begins to soften. And our youth pastor, before Sally leaves prison, our youth pastor is going there once a week, leading a Bible study in prison with women that Sally has gathered around her. By the time she gets out of prison, she decides that she wants to make something of her life and she becomes a florist and she gets married to a guy in our church and her daughter 
today is married and has a daughter of her own, and they own a home together in a neighborhood in Boston. Five years after we had that first conversation, Sally didn't recognize herself. About, I don't know, a month or two into this process, Sally came to church one Sunday, and she said to me, you know, she was listening to this something, and she'd read something in the paper, I don't remember what it was, and, you know, she'd gotten a, a bad slant on a story, or maybe she'd gotten the, the accurate story. Anyway, Sally says to me, and you know what else? Those people, I don't remember what she was talking about, but those people, they're one of those born-agains. She said, I am so glad that we're not those born-agains. And then she looks at me, and evidently I've got a funny look on my face. And Sally says, you're not one of those born-agains, are you? And I said, Sally, i got something weird to tell you. And she said, well, you're scaring me, what? And I said, you know, I am one of those born-agains, and so are you. (laughs) This is an analogy that Jesus used a long time ago, Sally. Now, that analogy has been bastardized and profaned, and terrible things have been done to it. But originally... Jesus used that analogy with a group of people he was talking to to explain to them just how dramatic the change is in our lives. It like changes who we are. It's so dramatic, the difference in our lives, when we get it, when we make that connection. And that's what he was describing. He was talking to a guy who was actually a religion professor. And he was saying to him, you may know a lot about religion, but it's not about knowing a lot about religion. It's about having God inside of you and it changes you. It's like you're born again. That's all it means, Sally, and you're one of them too. This, of course, depressed Sally for a long time. But this is who you are, Sally. And for most of you in here this morning, this is who you are. You're someone who's been remade. You're someone who's been changed. Three things I think we need to do with this. Number one, we need to recognize and own our identity change. We need to recognize and own it. This is the process going on in your life right now. If you're someone who's connecting to God because of what Jesus Christ has done, this is the process that's going on in you. You are being changed. You are being remade into somebody who looks like Him. Being a Christ follower is not just about believing something different. It's not like, I don't believe in God at all. Oh, you know, I, can't, I, yeah, I don't believe in God. That's not what being a Christ follower is. Being a Christ follower is not about believing something different. It's about being something different. Or more precisely, it's about being made something different. We need to recognize and own our identity change. Secondly, I think we need to recognize, don't miss this, I think we need to recognize that sometimes the internal struggle that we feel is because of this process. Sometimes some of the angst that you feel emotionally or even spiritually is because of this process. I'm reminded of, some of you know in one of Paul's letters to one of these groups of Christians, he wrote to a group of Christians in Rome. And in Romans 7, and I encourage you to go back and read this later. Even if you've read it many times, I would encourage you to read this this week. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul does a pretty remarkable thing. He basically says, you know, look, what I want to do, I can't really do. 
and what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. I'm like a total mess. I'm wretched. I'm goofy. I don't even get it. What good can come from me? How can this be rescued? Then he remembers, then he recognizes, he says, but thanks be to God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Sometimes the angst that we feel, the struggle inside of us, is because of this process of God changing us into something new. That's someone not long ago, one of you asked me, with a measure of angst, asked me, why don't I love God more? And it's interesting, implicit in that question was like a self-accusation. You know, that they were essentially saying, is something wrong with me? Do I even love Him at all? Do I get it? And if you've ever felt that way, there may be something wrong. But I would suggest most of the time, it's the opposite. Why would you even ask that question if there weren't some deep internal drive that made you want to love God more? You are being changed. And some of the angst that you and I struggle with, even some of the discouragement that you and I struggle with, is because of this changing identity, this wonderful process, wonderful, difficult process that God is enacting in our lives. Third thing I would say is we need to recognize and own our identity change. Secondly, we need to recognize and remember that some of the internal struggle we feel is because of this, it's a good thing, it's because of this identity change. And thirdly, we need to nurture our new identity. We need to nurture it. This is the heart of growing as a Christ follower. This is the essence of it. This is what it means to nurture God's opinion of us within ourselves. To think about ourselves the way God thinks of us. To refuse to be defined by our talent or our limitations or our upbringing or what's culturally relevant or what we look like or the job that we have, etc. But to be defined by God and what God says about us. This is what it means to grow more like Him. We understand more and more who we are and who we're becoming because of Him. This is part of why we encourage one another to have a devotional life where we try to connect with Him. And we literally try to pray. We try to talk to God. If this stuff isn't true, we're very close to being mentally ill. We're trying to talk to someone who's not there. But if this stuff is true, that's the most important exercise in your week. And we break open His Word because we hear stories and testimonies of people who've been changed. And we get to reflect on that. And we get to think about, what does that tell us about God? What does that tell me about me? We learn more about God and we learn more about what God says about us. So, this Christmas season, I want to encourage all of us to try to spend some time thinking about Jesus from this perspective. Look, here's the subtext of everything we've been saying for the last three weeks. God's ultimate gift to us is Himself. That's why I've talked about an encounter with God and God's generosity toward us almost interchangeably for these few weeks. You know, an encounter with God changes us. God's gift to us, and it changes us, it, it redefines us. We've used those almost interchangeably because God's ultimate gift to us is Himself. This makes Jesus the supreme expression of God's generosity. Jesus is squeezed into human skin. This is the Son of God coming to be one of us. Now, typically, 
when you think about that, you'll hear somebody ask the question, what does this tell us about God? And that's a great question. But I want us to ask a different question this week. I want us to ask, what is that fact? The fact that God squeezed Himself into human skin. The fact that God decided to become a man and live among us. What does that say about us? What does that say about humanity? And what does that say about me? God took on my form. God became like me. And He told me explicitly that He did it as an act of love toward me. So this week, let's recognize and own the identity change in us. Let's spend some time thinking about how different God is making us from who we might have been and even who we were. And let's remember that the internal struggle that we sometimes feel is partly because of this process of our identity being changed. And then let's nurture that identity change. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in the stillness today. So we offer up a period here. We give a full stop to the flurry of activity. And we want to give you a moment to speak. I pray that you'd remind us the, uh, the times and the ways that you've reached out, that you've connected with us, that you've offered yourself to us. Lord, there are those of us here this morning, certainly, who have spent a lot of time nurturing doubt or nurturing our finances, nurturing dreams of success, or nurturing a relationship that doesn't promote you, nurturing anger or bitterness or depression or worry. Lord, we ask you to forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, and enable us to nurture our newness, our connection to you. Give us reminders, Lord, this week what that would look like. And I ask in Jesus' name that you would speak this week directly to your people. Speak. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Challenge for you, the next time you're at a party, work party, or social gathering in your home, and somebody asks you, have you ever been asked the icebreaker question? It's a good icebreaker question. What's your favorite Christmas present ever? I want to challenge you sometime to say, you know, my connection to Jesus. That's a conversation stopper, but it also... (laughs) It also may be a way to introduce, wow... A great conversation later with somebody about, you know, this stuff.